In the world to come, you get the Ziv HaShchina, the ray of the Shchina, or as our um, translator has called it, the effulgence. The what? The effulgence. The ray. The ray. Right. And what's the key idea of a ray? You need the heart that allows you to see something, and so you need the something, and then... Right. Right. So let's, let's give an example. I'm teaching you, hopefully. That's supposedly the plan here, right? Now, what's happening when someone teaches a person? The, the teacher knows something, right? Yeah. Okay. And the student doesn't know it, right? And the simple understanding is that the teacher is getting the student to know what the teacher is getting the student to know what the teacher knows, right? Mm -hmm. That's the simple idea. What? Now, so would you think that it's a fair model to think about it like, say, I've got a cup of coffee here, which is a full cup of coffee. I have an empty cup over here, and I could pour the full cup of coffee, and the coffee would then go in the empty cup. Is that like a good analogy for teaching? No. No, why not? Okay, because my knowledge is not being decreased, yeah? Okay. I was going to say, how do you know you're increasing knowledge? Well, that's assuming the teaching works, right? That, I mean, if it, you know. <laughs> like your knowledge, you don't, you don't, what? You don't lose your knowledge. Actually, so, you gain, right? Go, well, I don't want to know if the coffee analogy is good. Okay, so one problem with the coffee analogy has to do with this cup, the cup that has the coffee. That's not an accurate thing because the cop with the coffee loses the coffee in order for the second cup to gain the coffee. So that's not right. I don't become ignorant by teaching you. But I want to focus on something else, which is the empty cup. Okay. Is you, so not the teacher teaching, but the student learning. Is that like filling the empty cup with coffee? No, because the student is empty. Um, if you're about I mean, empty of that. I mean, this cup yeah. is not empty also. It's got air in it, right? I mean, but it's yeah. empty of coffee. It's empty of the thing that the teacher hasn't yet taught them, right? Yeah, right. so then if you teach them... So that, so that part would work, right? Yeah. So your objection to the coffee cup analogy is only as the coffee, full coffee cup, doesn't good, do a good job of representing the teacher teaching, but the empty coffee cup does rep do a good job of representing the, the student receiving. Yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to argue that that's not a good analogy, even for the student receiving. No, 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 no. When you're teaching somebody, they have to already have a mind of their own, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this cup, it just lacks coffee, and then I'm introducing coffee, right? If I could take my knowledge and just put it where it's lacking, I could teach the coffee cup. The coffee cup lacks knowledge, right? Can I teach the coffee cup? No. No. Right. In other words, there's something interesting. Is that I can't just like take the knowledge and pour it out of my mind into something else. It doesn't work like that, right? So what's happening when I'm teaching? When you teach what? Anything. You, you only can teach humans. Why? Because they're alive. You're conveying information, we're learning it, we're internalizing it, processing it, thinking about it, and then making it reoccur. You can only teach things with the brain capability of being able to learn. Ah, right, okay. So what I'm doing is actually, I'm stimulating your mind to know things, rather than actually transferring knowledge from my mind into your mind, right? You can't transfer knowledge. What you can do is you can 
stimulate another mind to know things, and hopefully they're knowing things that parallels what, what you know. Yeah? Okay. So now I want you to think of what? Like hopefully at the end of the class, right, what you know about the topic I taught lines up with what, what, I, know. what I know. Okay. Right? Like two things that are parallel to each other. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Right. In other words, I'm not, right, I'm not. But it takes time. For sure, but that, that, that's, not but, that, that's not relevant, right? So it's more like, it's more like I have a cup of coffee and I give you instructions of how to make a cup of coffee and then you go make your own cup of coffee. <laughs> that's actually much more what it's like, right? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Good? Okay. So now... It could, but that just uh, goes in a direction I'm not. Well, like, like not, really back to Shem. Shem doesn't work, but, also, but that's not. I mean, I don't want to go into that right now. I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally avoiding that whole yeah, area. Really <laughs> okay. So now. So now. When. When do you actually, so, so now, what does it mean to like say that someone is a really good teacher? What does that mean? How do you, how do you see that someone is a good teacher? That you enjoy the talk. No. Explain no, to that well, you actually can move the knowledge and comprehend. Right. I want to turn this off. Okay. Explains enough that you can comprehend. Okay. Then I could teach over. Yeah. Okay, well. That there's proof well. that you actually got knowledge. Yeah, how does a teacher tell you understood if you can repeat so, that? So in other words, no. you look to look at how good of the teacher is as a teacher, you don't look at the teacher, who do you look at? The students. Right? I mean, not always actually. See that's right. No, I mean, someone could be a bad student. Like there's times where I'm really distracted in class, that doesn't have any reflection on my teacher. Well, it depends on how we conceive of teaching. If we can teach of teaching as merely an intellectual process, then we'd have to look at students of that teacher. When you're distracted, you don't count as a student. Or if we think of teaching as an educational process rather than an intellectual process, then even when you're distracted, you count as a student, and the fact that you remain distracted is an indication that they're not a good teacher. That's so important. Why does it not engage in that? Right. So this is very important, right? If you are coming to me, and I'm coming to you and saying, I'm going to, uh, there's two words for this, by the way, in Hebrew. There's a word called hayra, which is instruction, and a word called chinuch, which is education. Can you say the first word again? Hayra'ah. What? Can you say it again? So in instruction, which is a purely intellectual process, what qualifies you as a student is that you, well, not yet, you're trying to learn this thing, right? This intellectual discipline. And the teacher is trying to teach it to you, right? So, like, this is the idea, like, supposedly of, like, um, higher education, supposedly, is that, like, you know, you go to, a, you go to like, a, a math, college math class. The, pre, the supposition is, like, you're there to learn math. The teacher's there to teach you math. And, like, that's it. I'm not saying that's how life really works, but, okay, right. And then there's something called education. Education is that there's something holistic about the teacher or the educator, and they are trying to bring the student to that place, which may involve information, involve character, involves values. And if you are an educator and your students are distracted, then that does show on a failing as you as an educator. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, okay. Good? Yes. Okay. So, if we, so, that means if we want to look at the teacher being a teacher, we don't look at the teacher, we look at the student, right? But what do we have to look for? And this is, this is the danger, is that you could look at the student and you might not find the teacher because for any number of reasons, it might not be obvious to you the influence of the teacher in the student. I'll just give you an example, okay? Um, how many things do you know 
that your sense of you just know them. Like you don't recall anyone ever teaching them to you. You don't recall ever learning them. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff, yeah, right? But but now the facts are that there is nothing that you just know, right? When you came into this world at birth, what did you just know? Nothing. Okay, so then everything that you know was via the influence of? I mean, but do you mean like things that you know like lessons or like I realized to open a door, I have to do like, no one taught me how to open a door. Sure. I that. Yes. I know one taught me how to open a book. No one yes. taught me how to sit in a chair. Those things are just... You did no. They are taught. They're taught. They're taught. There are two basic ways you learn them. There are two basic ways you learn them. One is you act is observing other people, and you gain a tremendous number of observing the people. You don't realize that because that happens like you know infancy. That's number one. Number two, there's something and I forgot the name of it right now. Um, it's a feature of child psychology. We discuss a lot where basically things teach you how to use them. Yeah, um, like a chair. Right. So what ends up happening is that like, you go to the door and you try and open it and it doesn't open. Right? And you look at the and then little kid looks at the handle and it's like, hmm. And so the fact that like it's and the and, and, and the fact that the handle looks like that makes the child think maybe I should like turn the handle and then it opens like, aha, I've discovered the way to open the door is by turning the handle. Right? But that was through a process of interacting with some door at some point in time, right? And without that, would you ever known how to open doors? No. But like sitting on the floor, like, oh, I'm tired, my brain, like, you know what I mean? There's certain things that you don't, like, you observe, I think most of it is observed. There's a eat, lot of, eating. what? A baby doesn't get taught have, to eat. They really? Have you, have you ever? They don't choke on it. Okay, but I'm not talking about things that are, in, I'm not talking, I'm talking about things that are cognitive knowledge. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about something that is, I'm not talking about something like how to chew. Okay, like not uh, actual things that you actually have to do, like sit in the chair. Okay. Right, but like, yeah, how to put something together, take it apart, right? That if you crawl off the couch, you're going to fall and hurt yourself, right? Those are things you learn, right? There's other things which aren't like that, right? You got what I'm saying? Yeah, that's okay. just a dirty degree. It's like problem solving. Right, so like, you learn. Like, taught me how to do that, okay. But that depends, that depends, right? So the problem is that you're thinking of teaching in a very formalized way, but what's happening is there are things, and those things have exerted an influence on you. Yeah. And it's that influence that causes your mind to develop in a certain way, and you call that knowledge, right? So now, if we like look at ourselves honestly, right? How much of who we are us. is independently us? Zero. I won't go so far to say zero. Yeah, but it's not like, right? In other words, it's very little, right? Okay. You should get it, right? So going back to, so now, in a certain sense, therefore, if we look at ourselves, right, and we're looking, when, we're, when we're looking at ourselves, we can really discover the world, but we're discovering the world as the world has an influence on us, right? How the world has changed us, how the world has an impact on us, how the world has caused us to experience, right? And so you kind of have these two ways of thinking. There's one way of thinking where most of us do is that we look at ourselves and what do we see is ourselves. Another way of looking at yourself is you look at yourself and what do you see? The influence of your teachers, your parents, your society. Right? Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. So now, what happens when you look at yourself in this world? You see yourself. What happens when you look at yourself in the world to come? What do you see? No, when you're in the world to come, when you look at yourself, what are you going to see? How are we supposed to know? What? Not the no, not the influence of the world. Because it says right here in the book that we've been learning. What? Are you asking a question? Like, what are we going to look like? You, you do realize when I say look at, I mean that in a metaphoric sense. I don't mean like yeah, you look at your... Yeah, I'm saying, how are you supposed to know? You mean Would visually you... what it's going to look like, the world? No. I mean, when you, when you exp right now, when you look into yourself, you think, what do I know? What am I like? Right? All of that, you call that yourself, right? Yeah. Okay. But really, that is the influence of your teachers, your parents, your society yeah. on you, right? Yeah. Okay. But you don't walk around feeling 
this sense that everything you're seeing is a reflection of something other than yourself. Everything you're experiencing in yourself is a reflection of other than yourself, yeah. right? You don't, you don't experience yourself that way. So seeing yourself becomes a very self-centered experience rather than a very opening experience, right? Okay, but now in the world to come, when you see yourself, what are you going to see? When you look at yourself, you're going to see, well, you're not going to see God. You're going to see the influence of God. Yes, because that's it. Right, because what? Because what, in other words, in other words, let's go back to the physical. Let's, let's go back to the, the the analogy of the teacher. When you have a teacher, okay, some person they learn from a teacher, and they look at themselves and they feel like, oh, I know this and I know this and I know this, right? And the same person could also look at themselves and look at the very same knowledge, and they say have a sense of. My teacher knows this, and my teacher knew that, and my teacher is this way, my teacher is that way, because the knowledge they see in themselves, they don't see it as a reflection of themselves, they see that as a reflection of? The teacher. So in the world to come, you'll see the reflection of the Shaman. I mean, is not everything through his will and influence? And now, in order for that to happen, our souls need to be clean of anything that is... Isn't that like... What? Indirect. Yes, this is the point. The point. This is the point that the Alter wants to emphasize is the indirectness of it all. Okay. Okay. So all you get to see or experience of Hashem is Hashem's influence on you. I mean, that's all you know of anybody, right? What do you know of me? What do you know of your mother? What do you know of anybody? You only know how they influence you. You only know their ray. You only know their effulgence. You only know how they're reflecting off of you and causing you to be different in some way. That's all you know of them. That's the only impression you have of anybody. Now, if you're more crass and, and self-absorbed, you don't even notice that. You take those influences and you call them yourself. If you're more open and you have clarity, you see, those, you see so much part, parts of you as not of you, but as reflections of... Well, I mean, um, in this world, you see them as reflections of your teachers and your parents and your culture, right? If you're a tzaddik, you see them as reflections of? That's actually really cool. And if you're in the world to come, then everybody sees it as a reflection of Hashem. Is like, what would that look like? That's called a tzaddik. That's what a tzaddik is like. What does that mean to see yourself as a reflection of Hashem? So, I don't know what it's like because I don't experience myself that way. But I can give you an analogy, okay? Yeah. So, for instance, there are things in myself. Like, I had a teacher in high school. Um, his name was Mr. Redmond. Uh, Redmond. He was a very wonderful man. Um, and he taught four classes. He taught debate, speech, small group discussion, and argumentation. And I took all four of his classes, and I also was his teacher's assistant. You'd be a teacher's assistant for one semester in high school, so I did that too. In high school? Yes. Wow. So I did. I, I I was whatever. I basically, you know, had him for five semesters, which was the maximum I could have. No, because I'm not in touch with anybody. But the only teacher that I ever was ever in touch with after high school was him. Um, <laughs> so technically, if you were the intense person, you would be in touch with him. Yes. <laughs> oh, the only teacher you were in touch with too? Was him. I don't keep in touch with people in general. Okay, sorry. You know, it's like a personality trait. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, now, there are a lot of things that he taught me. But there are things that to this day that, like, they feel intuitive and they feel me, but if I pause and I reflect, I can actually almost sense like you're like I'm channeling him, and techniques or ways of approaching things. Okay, now, and so then you start to raise this interesting question: This is such a major part of who I am, and yet, absent his influence, would this even be part of me? Right. Now you can spend time focusing on that, or you could spend time focusing on having a sense of him, which, you know, that's a different kind of thing, right? Okay. 
Now, so in the world to come, right, Hashem illuminates everything. Hashem enlivens everything. Hashem penetrates everything. Hashem permeates everything, right? But in the world to come, we have a better sense that who we are and what we're made of is Hashem's ray. Hashem's effulgence, right? That's the word. And that's because of two things. One, the things that distract us and take us away from being able to do that are gone. Most notably, our bodies and the stain of sin. And we also have the proper lenses to be able to see it that way, which is the tournaments as we take with us. But, and this is a very deep and intimate sense of Hashem. But, and this is very important, it's indirect, right? You're not seeing Hashem for who Hashem is. You're seeing Hashem is how He's reflected in your reality. Now, we use those terms all the time, but we mean that in a very loose metaphoric sense. This is a much more vivid and intense sense. Okay? And it is extremely pleasurable. How pleasurable is it? Remember yesterday's class? That it was worth it for Acher to be in Gehenna for? No. Hundred, over a hundred years, where even hour is of 70 years of suffering, just to have one moment of experiencing it. So what is it like to have a sense that my reality is because of Hashem's influence? on me rather than me myself. What is that like? That is the most wonderful thing to possibly experience beyond what we can fathom. And could you experience that in deeper and truer ways? Sure. But as you move from deeper and truer ways, you have to realize that your previous way of experiencing was also limiting and insufficient. So there's this process of disillusionment and letting go of the previous sense and going to a higher sense. That's what means the soul ascends higher and higher in Ganeitha. This is why the Talmud says that the righteous have no rest, not in this world and not in the world to come. Okay? Yes? You said it was going to change when the comes. I don't want to go into that right now. Okay. But now, so, on the other hand, what happens when you do a mitzvah in this world? So let's read the text inside. After the parentheses with Zivashkina, but. As for the essence of the Holy One, blessed be he, no thought can apprehend him at all, except when it apprehends and is clothed in the Torah and its mitzvahs. Only then does it truly apprehend and is clothed in the Holy One, blessed be he, inasmuch as the Holy One, blessed be he, are one and the same. So what does that mean? That in this world, because Hashem is within the Torah mitzvahs and you are doing the Torah mitzvahs, you're actually interacting with and together with Hashem, as we learned previously. So now, what is better for you if connection to Hashem is what, is what you want? To be in this world and do mitzvahs, or in the next world and experience the effulgence of the divine presence? In this world. Why is that better for you, not for Hashem? That's like saying, I want to have positive experiences now so I have good memories later. Does that make sense? Think about, what, think about a person who says, I really want to have, like, I really want to spend time with my children now because later, when I'm older and they're married off, I want to be able to have good memories of them. No, no that's like... It's like what you said yesterday with grandma. Right. The reverse is true, right? The memories, the yeah. value in the memories is, is in as much as they're linked to the real thing, but the real thing was the interaction, the connection, right? So if what, I'm, what I care about is connection with Hashem, then I want direct connection. Even if that direct connection is not as satisfying as an experience in the moment, that's the real thing. That's the actual thing. Like, think about it. Would you rather have good memories of the past or interact with someone you care about in the present? Even though the interaction in the present is never as nostalgic and as wonderful in the present as it is in hindsight. Does this make sense? Okay, right. So let's think about this for a second. If someone says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to have a, like, really work on my relationship with my small children so that when they grow up, I have good memories of them. I think we'd all think there's something weird about that. Yeah. So yeah. now, how should we think about someone says, I'm going to really work hard at doing Torah mitzvahs so that I'm able to have a good part of the afterlife? That's literally like everyone always decides for Well, I mean, it's a mission not to do that. It's a, what Alter Rebbe says that better this life of Torah mitzvahs than all the life of the world to come is a Mishnah. What do you mean? 
That's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's not Chabad, right? There's things that are just Chabad. That's a Mishnah, like the basic Judaism. Yeah. What about it? This idea that you're saying is just Chabad. It's not just Chabad. It's now, not just Chabad. It's not just Chabad. We don't believe in Shkara Nainesh. Really? I mean, we do. It's part of the we believe in Shkara Nainesh. If you don't believe in reward and punishment, you're a heretic. I'm sorry. We don't focus on it. We don't focus on us. Oh, so that's the thing, right? Now, the question is not a matter of belief or not belief. The question is focus, right? What's a heretic? A heretic? A heretic is someone who goes against the fundamental tenets of a religion. I thought we don't focus on because of your analogy right now. It's like as if we're... Right, right, right. And that is not Chabad, but that's the other perspective, right? Can you give me the, can you give me the um, Rambam volume Aleph with the one star, please? One star? One star. The one star Aleph. Because when they printed it, they didn't realize how many volumes they were going to have, and they didn't print them in order, and then they realized that they needed... They thought that, that this book... And the next book will be able to be printed in one volume. So really they printed like volume three as volume two, and like, oops. Oh it turns God. out there's more in these in this than fits in one book. That I'm going to work on relationship with my children now, so I can have good memories oh, right, right, in the right. future. I'm work what? My relationship with my children now, so I can have good memories of them in the future. What? I do not know Rumble. What about you I want you to know something. I want you to know something. This is very important to know, okay? There are things that are very impressive when you don't know how they work. Okay. I one time I one time went into the beginner's Mishnah class, which I teach after they finish Mishnah. And they were learning the Mishnah and Brachas. So I come in the class and I say and I start like talking to them about what they're learning. Yeah. And I start like showing them that I know exactly what the Mishnah says and everything else. And they're, like, oh, wow. and they're like, do you know the whole Mishnah by heart? And I say, no. I say, and I say, okay, so now what you should realize is number one, that when someone seems to have relevant knowledge that they didn't prepare for, it gives off the impression that they have the entire body available. But then you have to think about it. Well, okay, if you're beginners and you're learning something, then probably that's the beginner level stuff. So it would presumably be the case that about which things? The things that I chose to teach. <laughs> right? So always be suspicious when people come off knowing so much. What? Always be suspicious when it sounds like someone knows a lot. Because probably what it is is they just happen to know the things that they've learned and are interested in, and people have a way of only opening up or talking about the stuff that they're interested in, right? So no, it gives I feel like the. I, can ask nothing with I don't think. Don't don't well, don't be that impressed. I mean, I do learn Rambam every year. Okay, fine, but like familiar. Okay. Do not, a person should not say, I am now reading and translating freely. A person, now by this is Rambam, this is the, um, not Chassidus, right? This is not Chabad, this is Rambam. A person should not say that they will do mitzvahs and be involved in it, the wisdom of the Torah in order to receive the blessings that are written in the Torah or in order to merit the world to come or that I will abstain from sins and the prohibitions of the Torah in order to be saved from the curse in the Torah or not to be cut off from the world to come. It is not proper to serve God in this way. Because someone who serves God in this way serves God out of fear. And this is not the virtue nor of the prophets nor of the sages. And it is not proper for to serve this God in this manner. Like you want, the, you're doing it for, you know, to go to Ghana and not to go to Ghana. Right? Unless you are one of the ignorant masses or the women and children. <laughs> That's what <laughs> that you have to educate them to serve God out of fear for these ulterior motives until their minds become broad enough that they can serve God out of love. What does it mean to serve God out of love and be involved in Torah mitzvahs and to go in the path of the Torah's wisdom? Not because of any other outside consideration, but rather uh, not because you fear the negativity or you desire the reward, but rather you do what is true because it is true. And ultimately, good does come. So that is not like chassidus. That is 
Confused. Rambam. Now the question is, do you go with the starting point that everybody must be in the category of the ignorant masses, women and children, and talk about reward and punishment a lot? Or do you go with the starting point that people are really you know, deeper than, than you, and we should give them the benefit of the doubt and talk about them like they're mature adults? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the difference. So in Chabad, we talk to people as if they are all mature adults. Even the ignorant masses, women and children. What? <laughs> no, to be fair, it is nothing. It is it is a societal observation. It's not a it's not a it's not a gender thing. In other words, um, you know, women did not. Where women generally were not educated. So that's right. The Rambam. Depends what you read. I mean, you see what he says about men. <laughs> What? The Rebbe could be very harsh. Okay, so, so what the Alter is saying is now, right? This means we have to totally change the way we think about things. Instead of thinking of this world as the ticket to the afterlife, we have to start thinking of this world is. This is the final destination. Oh, so this creates two problems, okay? Which is not addressed here, but let's talk about them. Problem number one is, well, I mean, you only have a limited time here, so that kind of stinks. Number two, number two, um, it's very nice that we're connecting with Hashem, but we don't really, like, feel it, right? Which is, that kind of stinks. Now, both of these problems are solved by one idea, which is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead means that our, when we leave this world at the end of our lives, is that a permanent? No, that's temporary. Remember this? Nobody dies forever. I've never really learned how to time really know. Okay, basically, there are 13 principles of Judaism. If you deny any of them, okay, you're a heretic. Okay? If I deny? Yes. yes. Heretic could be an English translation for min, apikiris, kaifer. All could be translated as heretic. I'm saying I've learned the concept of the resurrection, but I've never really learned it. Okay. How do I learn it? Um... In English, there is a book with a yellow cover somewhere, probably here. Um, I think called "The Dead Will Live Again" or "The Dead Will Rise Again" or something like that. What? Um, if you want something in English that's thorough and comprehensive, I think yeah. that's like a good place to read. Who wrote it? Um, I don't know. It was put out by Seekers in English, I think. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. So that me. So now, number one, that means that. When the resurrection happens, we'll be able to determine this again. Number two, there's a key difference between the world as it is now and the world in the era of the resurrection. And the key difference is that in the world of the resurrection, there's not going to be any klipa. And if there's no klipa, we'll be able to experience that we're being connected to Hashem. Now, we, right? So that's going to be pretty cool. But the point is, so now if you're asking me, would I rather have now in the physical world in exile or in the physical world in the resurrection, I would rather the resurrection. But if you're asking me, would I rather be in the physical world or in the world to come, that is a trickier question because that comes, what do I prioritize? Substance or experience? So I'm going to give you an analogy for this, okay? I mean, I can, and it really depends on my mood and how mature I'm feeling at the moment. Because if you answer that, it's like, then I want to die. You don't want to die. No. No, it's not that you want to die. Dying is like a cost. Right now? It's a cost. Yeah, but like, uh, isn't that kind of going against Hashem if you say something like that? Like, Hashem wants it here for a purpose. But but I'm not not talking from the perspective of religiosity. I'm talking about the perspective of the human human and the Jewish need to be connected to Hashem. Yeah. So what would you rather have? What would you rather have? Would you rather... Um, be with a friend when they're going through a difficult time or would you rather uh, be a friend who's going through a difficult time right and go through your Facebook posts of how much time you had you know last year with that friend well that's not true right people flip back and forth on that because it's hard to be with another. in other words be- it is a hard question. That's what I want you to understand. It's a hard question. And so it boils down to it's like this. If I'm at a place where what I really value is the actual connection, the substantive relationship, then where would I rather be? With them, I mean, they're going through a hard time. But if what I value is the experience of the relationship, 
right? Then, when the relationship gets, you know, unpleasant, I rather revert back into that kind of just subjective. So now, what kind of person is it that says, I want to do a lot of Torah mitzvah so that I can experience the Ziv HaShchina? It's the same kind of person who wants to what? They want to go through their old Facebook posts and remember how wonderful the relationship was because it, they don't want to actually deal with the difficulty of the real relationship. I always do that, though. But at the end of the day, we all recognize if we're, if we're standing outside and looking at it objectively that, like, that's not good for it's not. It's not good for you. Like if, you, like it's not good to live and to to value and experience detached from the actual substance. Yeah. So then the author is saying the same thing. Why would you think that this world is just a means to get to the afterlife? The afterlife is just an honest awareness of what's really going on in this world, and so the relationship is really in this world, and that relationship happens through the mitzvah. So so the thing that you really should want is the mitzvahs. Now, if your complaint is, I would like to experience the mitzvahs in this world, that's a legitimate complaint. But going to the afterlife doesn't solve that problem. What solves that problem is the resurrection of the dead after the coming of Mashiach. So like maybe work towards that. Make sense? Yes. Okay. So now what does it mean that we say we want Mashiach now? We want, we want Mashiach. this world to come to be more like, no, we want this world to be more like the world to come, no? Right, in the sense that we don't want to just be able to have an actual connection with Hashem. We want to be able to experience that that's what's happening. In this world. In this world. You want to experience that what's happening. That we're connecting to Hashem. And that's why... We want revelation of... Um, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All I'm doing is I'm taking the slogans and like unpacking them. Right? So, and that when we say a tzaddik has a taste of the world to come in this life, that means that for a tzaddik to some measure is living for them on their, in their own little bubble in the messianic era. And there's a famous story that, uh, uh, right, that Mendel Haradokar, Mendel Vitebsker, was a very great tzaddik. He was a friend and teacher of the Alter Rebbe. He lived in Tiberia, in Tiberias, and someone blew a chauffeur uh, on a mountain, and everyone's like, oh, Mashiach's coming! And so he opened the window and sniffed the air outside. And he said, nope, Mashiach's not here. And so the question was, why he had to open the window? And because in his place, in his base medrash, there was a sense of Mashiach. In his bubble, that was what was real to him. Right? So then for like, Tzadikim, how do we even harder on them is that you guess? Oh yeah, Tzadikim fear death more than we do. Why? Because they know what they're losing. Because they know what they're losing. What? Sure. We do. Like when you die, what are you going to lose? God forbid. Like really, honestly. No. Well, you know, you know the question is, what is life? You, when you die, you lose this world, right? Yeah. You temporarily. But what do you lose? You lose ice cream. You lose. No, you lose your animals. You lose people. I think that's a lot, okay? I'm just saying. You, 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 but what is it? A tzaddik is losing actually interacting with Hashem. Because you only get to interact with Hashem in mitzvahs. And up in Hashem, if they're a tzaddik, they're going to Ganeri. They're not going through the Ola Yehenim. Wait, do stop. Do stop. No, when you're a tzaddik, then it's very frustrating because you're not experiencing Hashem. You said you getting, I mean, you are. You're, not, you're just getting overwhelmed by Hashem's Shemitah. That's right. Do you said you can go straight to Ghan Eden? Like, kind of like the Yidin yes. by Mount Tyra? Like, they, like, passed out? No, Yidin by Mount Tyra is something else. Yidin by Mount Tyra is... I'm saying, like, you're thinking of yourself being a reflection of Hashem. That's not Hashem's self. You're getting frustrated? Isn't you, it frustrating in a complex person again? Yeah. Well, for everyone, why? it is after a few minutes. I just don't really get why. Why? Okay. I'll explain this to you, but you really have to be a little bit more... Like focused about it, okay? There are two kinds of frustration, okay? There's a frustration that comes from a negative place and a frustration that comes from a positive place. You have to differentiate the two, okay? I'm gonna start with simple examples, okay? Okay. 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 You apply to college, and every college you apply to turns you down. That's frustrating, right? Fine. I don't want to get. I don't want to. I don't want to get hung up on like the, the, which words in English to use, right? 
okay? There's... You're writing a novel and you can't seem to tie the narrative together. Like, you have the story and just, it, it, at some point it just doesn't, it doesn't close, it doesn't come together. That's also frustrating. But is it the same kind of thing? No. No. Why not? Because not getting into college is a reflection. It's just frustrating because where are you going to go? And it's more, it's not even frustrating. Why? Frustrating What's the difference? Like, you don't think it's going to apply. It's just like you apply that you get, you don't apply because you're like, yeah, you're you apply being like, oh, this is a chance for my future, right? But you're writing the novel. You want to, you want to complete it. But writing the novel, you can fix like have it and you're like trying to and like that's more yours. Do it. Yeah. No, no, no. The novel. So, so it's not that you can fix it because maybe you can't. I mean, it could be that you can't put it together. It's yours. In other words, there's a kind of frustration that comes because you have hit a limitation of your own, and you now have to deal with the price of success. The price of growth is encountering your own limitation. Yeah. Then there's somebody else coming along and with the power that they have over you, Singer. smashing you down. That's more frustrating. <laughs> it's not just more, it's a different, it's a different kind, it's, it's almost we should not even be using the same word in some sense. They're not the same kind of thing. They're very different. Right? So now, right, what does it mean that Gan Eden Haba is frustrating? That what happens... So for Sadiqim, it's like they're not writing the novel? And it's do, there's two levels of frustration. One is for you're. For us, it's like the it's the college of the novel. Yeah, because we're just like, oh, we want to do all the stuff, and now it's like taking that. But here it's the the, the tzaddik's oh, in Gan Eden, and he has this. And when you're in Gan Eden, also you have the sense that like I'm aware of Hashem, and that's so meaningful. And all of a sudden, you encounter that as much as I'm aware of Hashem, that comes through who I am, and therefore it's fundamentally limited, and it's a reflection of it's 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 a reflection of Hashem. It's not direct, and that's frustrating, right? Now, the tzaddik eventually has the ability to break through his limitations, right? And when he breaks through those limitations, or any person in Ganeidin, then they, then they, again, have the sense of knowing Hashem. But again, then they're faced with new limitations. And ultimately, there's a fundamental limitation, is that nothing you're ever doing is getting closer to actually interacting and being with Hashem. It's just always having this reflection of Hashem reflected in yourself. And so, a tzaddik, like... And so there's this, this, this immense frustration of wanting to be back in the world. By the way, why do we do mitzvahs on behalf of people who have passed away? Because they can't do it. Right, so that allows them to vicariously participate in connecting to Hashem. Like, really, it does? does yes. Can you give me an example? What is something you do for someone passed away? So when someone passes away... Like um, if you if you if you do If you do mitzvahs and... With intention? So there's an interesting discussion of how this works. The simplest answer is that if you're doing the mitzvahs, it's somehow actually caused or inspired by them. Just, there's a question of like just simply intending that it should be for their merit. Does that really accomplish anything? But like this is why there's a custom. Like if someone has passed away on their yard set, you go and you actually bring food to shul and you have people make a bracha because they wouldn't have made the bracha on this cake unless, but you bought the cake so that people make brachas for the, this person. This person hadn't, wasn't there, you wouldn't have done that. So then... If I'm like learning to it's oh, I mean, there are different opinions about it. There's opinion. There's opinions like if you're doing stuff you would have done anyway and you're just saying it's in their merit, does that really so accomplish it? Would you have otherwise done it? Oh, and so you're learning his... You're learning, I'm saying I what, to his... Oh, yeah, you know, if, if it's what he did then for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like if you, any time you learn anything that someone else taught, you listen to a class they gave, right? Anything, any, any way in which they're participating and involved in your doing of mitzvah has a, is, is a vicarious way they're affecting you. Yeah. So like that's why automatically any mitzvah you, any mitzvah you do for your deceased ancestors, automatically is in their merit because, like, without your ancestors, you wouldn't be here. That one's pretty obvious. Hence, like the idea of like children saying cottage for their parents and such. Okay. okay. To make them have an aliyah, um, like remember we explained the next time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It helps that process. Okay. 
So what the Alter Rebbe is saying is, and, and this you is. Want an aliyah, right? Yes. Right. And if you think about it in life, like, do you want things to be frustrating in the first way, where you like, pe- like powers greater than yourself block you and obstruct you? No. But do you want things to be frustrating where you have you encounter your genuine limits? No. You don't. No. So that's that's the difference between people I would say who are really living and people who are not really living. People who are really living. Okay, so the thing is like this. It's not that you want the feeling of frustration, right. but what does that frustration indicate? It indicates that you're fully engaged and fully there. Right. Okay, so now what the altar is saying is like this. If you prefer Gan Eden over this world, there's an element of shallowness to the way you're approaching everything. And not, it's not altruism. It's very important. The altar is not saying here, do it for God. He's saying, do it for you. Later on, he'll say, do it for God. That's what I'm already saying here. Make sense? Okay. So the greatest thing that could ever happen is that you could be a physical person in this world doing mitzvahs. Now, that could be in the messianic resurrection of the dead era, which is great because then you actually have a experience of that that's what's happening which would be nice, or a tzaddik in this life, in, in exile, where you also have a sense of that. Or you could be like the rest of us who you have to know that's true and believe that's true and conviction that it's true, but you don't actually directly get to experience it, and that's kind of frustrating. But you know what? I'd rather be frustrated in something real and meaningful and genuine, right, than have something that's, that's positive experience but is detached from the reality if I'm in my more mature Mindset. If I'm more shallow mindset, then I pick the opposite. And we do this all the time. Yes. Okay. Yes. You give mashallah that are amazing, and that's how I understand. But we learned in 1231 in another class that mashallah are at the highest level of learning. Okay. But that's the only way I understand because you're I Every time you explain something, it's with a mashallah. Right. Yes. And somewhere it said that, like, somewhere in the talk so well that they didn't even use, like, they don't use Mashallah. Like but I'm really like, Mashallah. And I don't think they're. Do you understand my question? Yes. Um, Mashallah are extremely important. Do you know where it was from that someone said that? I mean, it says in Chassidus that Mashalim, I mean, the are, are just, Mashalim are described, Mashalim are described as a curtain. A curtain is an interference. But Mashalim are always used to teach. A lot of Rabbi Nachman's works are all Mashalim. Yeah, I don't, don't not even, not touching Breslov at all. Okay, hello, every time I've, Learn anything because it is, there's always Mishalim. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, I'm So, there is a lot of Chassidus about the topic of Mishalim. And one of the key Mishalim in Chassidus is a Mashal. Where can I find that? In English? I don't know what's printed in English. If I can give you Hebrew sources. Okay. How do you always go to Mishalim? Um, Very smart. <laughs> no, you read all that. Uh, where's the best place? Like, can um, I find them online? So, in Parshas Lech Lecha, in Torah Ur, there's, there's Mashalim. There's, there's my mom that are about Mashalim. They're not easy, that's the I mean, these are the kinds of things that, I think, what's... What do you mean, in Parshas there's a safer called Torah Ur, which has uh, my marmot in the Parsha. I don't ever say in the Parsha. No, no. Okay. Mishalim, Mishalim are extremely powerful, but powerful things when they're misused can be problematic. Point is, I really appreciate your Mishalim. Um, are they often misused? <sighs> They're fine misused. They, Sorry, whatever. The mis- Mishalim, Mishalim have, I would say, three... They have, th- they, first off, they have two kinds of uses. They have what are, their, one use of a marshal is to convey an idea, the other use of a marshal is to emotionally motivate somebody. 
a misuse of a marshal is ha- usually happens when is the most common use is when you take something which is really meant to convey an idea and you try and use it to be emotionally motivating. Um, but there's other there's, there's it's a whole topic, Michelle. Okay. One day, but you um, learned how to like do it with everything. I'm not that smart. I just copy a lot of what you're, you're other people write. Okay. <laughs> now. Okay. I'm still alive. You don't have to eulogize me. Okay. I know. Um, all right. So that, so that was idea number one. Idea number one is that given what we've learned about Torah mitzvahs, we now understand that this world is the greatest gift that we could ever have. Because this is the world where we have the ability to actually be connected to Hashem. Whereas in the afterlife, we have an indirect sense of Hashem. Right? Now, again... No one is saying that this world is in its exile state where there's klipa is the ideal. Right? That's not the issue. The issue is this world versus the world to come. Not this world now versus this world in the Messianic era. And the Messianic era is far, far better right. because then you get the best of both. Right? Wait. Is there a way if you're not a tzaddik you can make yourself experience it? Or no. If you do so, you run the risk of deluding yourself and that's very, very dangerous. You can get a taste of being a tzaddik. That's possible for it to happen to a person. So, so this is an important thing. We have to differentiate between different kinds of feelings. For instance, Can you feel, can you feel something? Let's use a physical, let's use a physical thing. Can you feel a pain and yet have no sense of what's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah, that happens all the time, right? Yeah. Okay. Feel pain? Yeah. Like, you mean when your stomach hurts and you don't know what the issue is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, right? Okay. Now, you could then learn, and so then what you're going to do is to feel, and, oh, this, this what I'm feeling is, that, is this thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not that you're actually experiencing the underlying physical problem, which you're, you're still just experiencing the generic pain, right? Mm-hmm. But your mind has learned enough, and so you are telling yourself a story about what that pain is, which is hopefully accurate based on what you've learned about, you know, this. Right. Like, for example, um, one time I fell over in a class because I had tremendous pain on the right side of my body. And um, went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor said, "Well, I either have appendicitis or a kidney stone." And they gave me a CAT scan, and it turned out I had a kidney stone. No, it was small enough that it did not need to be removed. They gave me medication. Yes, it was extremely, extremely painful. Um, I, I do not recall ever experiencing something as painful as that in my life, physically. Yes. One second. Why can't you get it removed? It wasn't small enough to warrant it. It wasn't big enough to warrant getting it removed. Anyway, here's the point. Okay? If I ever experience pain like that again, what am I going to do? Now, I would like to reemphasize what the doctor said. The doctor did say it could either be a kidney stone or appendicitis, which barring something really which means I might, if, next, if I ever get appendicitis, I would probably stick it for. Right? Okay, so now let's go back to Let's go back. Now, if you do a mitzvah and you connect to Hashem, is it possible that connection to Hashem could have an effect on how you feel? Sure. Mm-hmm. But are you going to have a conscious experience of, Hash- of the connection to Hashem? Mm-hmm. No, because you're not a tzaddik. Mm-hmm. But if you've learned enough about what goes on when you, have, when you do a mitzvah, right? Will you, ha- will you have the information to tell yourself a story? Oh, this sense of like feeling like not going to go to my life, this is how the influence should be more that coming from the mitzvah. Right? Well, what about the other one? What? What about knowing that this is a mitzvah, so then having a feeling? I mean, like, right now, I'm about to take a little and that means everything I've and whatever, and then I'm like, wow. Okay, but that's different. So there's, so there's, so what we have to differentiate is that, so, right? So now let's go back to my, my analogy with the kidney stone. So there's the pain of the kidney stone, there's my knowledge that it's a kidney stone, right? Yeah. And then there is my feelings that come as a result of that knowledge. For instance, the relief that it's a kidney stone that will pass, and this is temporary, I don't need to have surgery, right? So I have now three different things going on. 
direct experience, which is the pain, cognition, yeah. which came the doctor telling me after the scans, right? Yeah. And then there is the f emotions that are caused from that cognition, right? Yeah. So now, when I do a mitzvah, if I think about the mitzvah, that can cause me to feel stuff, but that feeling is not the mitzvah. That feeling is a result of my own knowledge. So it's not nothing What? So it's nothing to do with Hashem. Yeah, it's just, if you think that you're doing something meaningful and valuable and impressive, are you going to feel awed and overjoyed and, and privileged? Sure. That's a human trait. That's the way human, human minds work. Then if you actually do the mitzvah, you're connected to Hashem, and that connection can affect you in positive ways and give you actual positive experiences in life. But you will not experience the godliness of that. You might even know, not even know to attribute it to the mitzvah unless you've learned enough and are convinced by what you've learned about what the mitzvah is. Right. Now, if you're a tzaddik, none of this is true. If you're a tzaddik, you actually directly experience the godly connection. You're experiencing a little bit of Ganeidin in this world. So you might not even, so you could actually have a situation where you have a non-sadic who's able to explain what happens when you do a mitzvah much better than the tzaddik. Right. But the tzaddik is directly experiencing that this is a, this is a connection to Hashem in a, in a very conscious way. And so their anticipation of the mitzvah is not a product of their learning, their cognition. It's much more visceral, like the way we experience pain and pleasure physically. So when someone does mitzvah, they're like, I feel like I connect to Hashem. That's that's right. That's right. Yeah. The easy proof to this is is that if you did a mitzvah without knowing it was a mitzvah, you probably would not like. Oh, that, now I feel something. Right. That probably wouldn't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Or the best example is like this. Like tefillin. There's no way to tell from the outside whether it's tefillin or kosher. Mm -hmm. So I could put on tefillin my whole life and feel very connected, but like it could be tefillin or puzzle. <laughs> Right? There's a famous story that... Um, that's not fine? Like... No, it just means that those feelings are the products right. of what? But there is a way to tell the scripture. You bring it to a person. That's right. So you want to hear a story? Same thing by Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. So, but, so, so person, there was a person who... who so so um, the two, two brothers, Reb Zush of Anapoli and Reb Melch of Luzhensk, used to travel around. They were students of the Mag and friends of the Altair. They used to travel around... Not publicized that they were big tzaddikim. And um, they had a little shtick that they would do is that one would confess doing a sin and the other one would teach him how to do tshuva. Mm -hmm. And they always would confess the sin that someone was around. Uh, uh, around. That, that someone around had done. So, so one time um, they came to a town the and they were in an the inn. They were in an inn and Rebzusha started to cry that he, uh, you know, he's been, he's, you know, an older person already, and, you know, his, his tefillin, he's never checked his tefillin, and now it turns out his tefillin are puzzle, he's never put on tefillin, and his brother's comforting him, it's okay, you get kosher tefillin, you'll put them on, and there's a guy who's like 70 years old, and he realizes, you know, I've never checked my tefillin if they're kosher, mm -hmm. and he goes and he hears the story, and he's very, you know, feels like, oh, maybe I should also check if my tefillin are kosher. Check since tefillin weren't kosher. And they were not kosher in such a way that they'd never been kosher. Which means he was 70 years old. He had never put on tefillin in his life. In the end, they, they wrote him a pair of tefillin. Um, written by Tzaddik. But before he could put them on, he died. So he never put those tefillin on. Yeah. Okay, but the point of the story, that for our purposes, is that did he know he wasn't doing the mitzvah? No. Now, if he was a tzaddik, would he have known he wasn't doing the mitzvah? Yeah. The way that I know that there's something wrong with my stomach because I can feel it, right? I don't know exactly what's wrong, but like something's not sitting right because there's a moving and shaking and all that stuff going on, right? So, right. Right. So when your person says I feel connected, it doesn't mean to say that we should dismiss the feeling. But if it's so clearly associated with the mitzvah and they're not a tzaddik, then that, that's a product of their cognition. Unless, okay, sometimes it, um, you know, something that's basically a quasi-miracle happens and a person gets a taste on some level of what it's like to be a tzaddik. That can happen when Hashem wants to bring a person to tshuva. Like you ask a person to light Shabbos candles the first time in their life they do it and something happens that is not explicable to them. They feel connected in a way that doesn't, that they're not thinking it's that important. Why else do they feel that connected? That's a gift from Hashem. That's not a, which is why when they try to do the mitzvah again and again to reclaim that, it never happens. There's a common thing. You go to the Kaisal the first time, many people, you feel really connected. And then what happens? You think, like, this is amazing. I should come back here all the time. And then? 
it doesn't work because that's not really your sensing the holiness of the kosel. It's more, I'm, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about there's a common phenomenon. If you're crying all the time, it probably has a lot more to do with your cognition of the cause of than the sense of holiness. It could. It could. It could. But it happens when people are not coming. That's the interesting one. People who don't know anything. Right. Yeah. So that, that's what's interesting. Okay. So that's, that's this idea that, that um, mitzvahs are the best thing, better than Ganeidin. So we should be. Right? Not wanting, we should not be trying to like, live our life for the afterlife. Good? Okay. We have one more idea, um, which we don't, I don't think we have time for now, because we're going to, but the, the last idea is that, that the mitzvahs are physical. And how we're supposed to understand that the, the mitzvahs being physical isn't that create a barrier between us and Hashem, the physicality. It doesn't, but, the, and the, but before, before we get to that, because we only have a little bit of time left, I'm going to preface with what the altar is not addressing. Okay. Um, I'm going to write something on the board. You don't mind if I write something on the board, do you? Okay. I'm going to write something on the board. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Society that from now on we use this squiggle to represent the number one, this squiggle to represent plus, this squiggle to represent two, this squiggle to represent equal, this squiggle to represent three, mm-hmm. right? Then in the future everyone will look at this like that makes perfect sense and no one will know what this means, right? Mm-hmm. So is the issue here the fact that I'm using squiggles to represent ideas or that you're just not familiar with how to decipher the squiggles? So you're not familiar. Right. Now the problem is not on the board, the problem is in your brain. Right? Right. Yeah, it's in your mind, right? Yeah. That's the problem, right? Okay. So now, when I do a mitzvah, why is it that I don't feel the holiness? Is it because A, the mitzvah is physical, or B, I'm crass? You're crass. It's because I'm crass. Proof being, crass. when the crass is grub. It's always nice when you have to use in- Yiddish words to translate English. <laughs> now, so when a tzaddik does a mitzvah, is the tzaddik's mitzvah less physical than mine? No. no, but the tzaddik is not what? Crass. And therefore, the tzaddik have a sense that the mitzvah is a connection to Hashem, an actual. Okay, so therefore, this question about the mitzvah being physical is that anything to do about our experience, or is this a separate issue from our experience? Okay, so what we're going to learn tomorrow is, Valtor is going to say, the mitzvah is being physical. People often misread this question as, well, I don't experience a connection to Hashem when I do a mitzvah. Oh. And like, that's not the point. Because, like, we all understand that you can use squiggles to represent ideas. That's fine, right? 
Now, if you don't know how to decipher that particular set of squiggles, that's not a problem with the squiggles, that's a problem. Right? So the fact that the mitzvah is physical right, is a separate issue from the fact that I'm too crass to pick up on the godliness of the mitzvah. Yeah. Okay? So what the altar is going to discuss is not, some, is not a question of why don't I experience the mitzvah as being connected to Hashem, but conceptually speaking, if I have to put on tefillin using leather and I have to connect to Hashem with a Shabbos candle made of wax, right? Isn't there something in between me and Hashem, namely? Wax. The wax or the leather. And so I'm not actually directly in contact with Hashem. Right. Independent of whether I'm able to actually perceive the godly of the mitzvah. That's not, that's not the issue. Right. Okay. So this is not a question about why don't I feel it? This is a question of, you're telling me there's a direct connect, interaction with Hashem. It's not a direct interaction. There's something in between me and Hashem. The physical thing that I'm doing the mitzvah with. Right. How is that not a separation between you and Hashem? It it's not. That's what the author is going to go on and explain. That's what we're going to learn tomorrow. Okay. I'm still debating whether we're to do chapter 27 or 32.